Grab a seat. I was going to do Hebrews chapter 7 uh, over the course of three weeks, but I thought just for fun, let's do it all today. <laughs> so buckle up. Yeah, it'll be good. Hey, keep your finger in Hebrews 7 and then um, find John chapter 4 also, because I'm going to add some more text too, just to make it longer. Um, <laughs> if you're visiting, you're like, oh man, I picked the wrong Sunday. Hey, have you ever, uh, have you ever been so focused on one thing that you thought was really important, so focused on it, like blinders, totally zoned in, and because you were so focused on that one thing, you completely missed the main thing? I was out walking the, uh, this week as I was thinking about the sermon and this passage, and, and I was walking down, uh, I guess it would be 6th Street on the sidewalk downtown, and as I was walking past one of the alleyways, I was coming up on the alleyway, this lady just came blasting out of the alleyway. And because it's one way, she was only looking left. She was only concerned about the traffic that she needed to merge into. She was really just trying to figure out how quickly can I merge out into the, to the street. And uh, I didn't get hit by a car, just so you know. Okay, you guys, are, look, you were like, concerned. You looked concerned for me. I didn't get hit by the car. Okay, I just want to let you know that. Okay. You're like, okay, but, but she almost hit me. She, I mean, I was like a couple feet away, and I was like, wow, if I had just taken another step or two, she would have ran right. Why? Because she was so focused on the traffic that she didn't think about something a little more important, like human life, walking down the sidewalk, right? She was distracted with something that really wasn't the main thing. And humans just tend to do that, don't we? We kind of get zoned in. I think in one way, it's this gift God gave us that we have this ability to just really focus on one or two things sometimes. But sometimes we get so focused on the wrong things, we miss the main thing. We do it all the time. Why don't you flip with really, really quick to John chapter 4. We're just going to spend a minute here. I want, I want you to, to see an interaction that Jesus had that I think ties in really well with our passage this morning. It's one you're super familiar with. So Jesus is leaving Judea, that's the southern part of Israel. He's leaving Judea, he's heading back to Galilee in the north, um, and as he heads to Galilee, he, took, he takes sort of an unexpected road through Samaria. Uh, and Samaria, just a little bit of backstory, and some of you guys that have been to church for a well while know all this, but Samaria uh, was basically northern Israel. And uh, Israel, at one point in its history, fractured into two kingdoms, north and south, and the northern kingdom kind of was always more decidedly pagan than the south. I mean, the south had their issues too. But, but part of the reason for that, I think, was that the north, they never had access to the temple. That was in Jerusalem, in Judea. So, so the north, they kind of created their own high places. They kind of created their own holy special sites of worship. And there was almost never really a period of holiness in the northern kingdom. It was almost always marked... Um, by idolatry and, and paganism. And when they were deported by the Assyrians, they married into, uh, or when they were taken over by the Assyrians in the Assyrian captivity, they married into the Assyrians. So they were kind of half-breed Gentile, half-breed Jews. Uh, they wouldn't have called themselves Jews because Jews were the southern part of the, of the kingdom. Now, Jesus chooses to go through this, which is strange um, and unpredictable. Let's pick up, the, pick up the story in verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, okay, southern kingdom, Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us a little note here. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, 
in who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus introduces what we would later find out is actually a messianic idea that this, this, this living water is accessible, is available in Jesus. Now listen to her response. The woman said to him, sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? And then she says an interesting thing in verse 12. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Of course, the answer is what? Yes, absolutely. She, she, goes, she goes right to the patriarchs, who, by the way, both her and Jesus both shared that lineage. Jacob was, was a patriarch in her lineage. She goes, she goes back to sort of the, the bloodline of the patriarchal system for credibility. She says, do you think you're better than Isaac who dug this well? Is what she asks. Where am I? Anybody? Anybody following along? 12, thank you. 13, she, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Correct. She has rightly assessed one of his three high offices. He is a prophet. But here's where I want you to zone in, okay? Here's what I want you to see. Now, she's about to air her grievances with the, Jew, the Jews in the South. She's about to express her frustration with really the geographical snobbery, the ethnic, ethical or ethnic snobbery of the Jews towards her. Listen to what she says. She wants the living water. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, meaning this holy place, this place in the north. This is where our fathers, before Jerusalem was set up by David, the patriarchs worshiped in a different place. Did you know that? Before the temple was established, before David conquered Jerusalem from the Canaanites and, and made it the capital, they worshiped in a different place. There was a different locale. So she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, you Jews, you from Jerusalem, you say we have to come worship on your mountain." That Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship, is what she says. So this tells us something about the mindset of the day. The Jews said, if you want to interface with God, if you want to be close to God, if you want to know God, you got to get up here to the Temple Mount. And the Samaritans said, if you want to interface with God, we have our own special places. So there's this bifurcation, this, this different uh, way of accessing God from both sides. Now she thinks... I think she thinks Jesus is going to tell her, if you want this living water, you better get your tail up the mount to the temple and go get it. I think that's what she thinks he's going to say. And I think that's why she brings up this idea about why are you always telling us to come worship on your mountain? Why are you always telling us to come to the temple? Now, listen to what Jesus says to her. I want you to see this. Don't lose me. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, meaning in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship 
what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Here's what I want you to see. She's focused on bloodline. She's focused on patriarchs. She's focused on geography. She's focused on ethnicity. She's focused on all of that stuff. She's looking at the cars coming left. What is she not seeing? She's not seeing that right in front of her is the Messiah. And the Messiah has the power to literally change the place of worship, the people of worship, the process of worship. He can change all of it. Now look at what she says in verse 25. The woman said to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming. This is so funny. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus leans into her and he says, the one you're speaking of, the one that has the power to change the the location of worship, the one that has the power to to change the scope of who can worship and where they can worship and how they can interface. And he he leans into her and he says, that's me. (laughs) I'm him. He he can change everything. And of course, we know the rest of the story. She leaves her bucket, she runs, and she has to tell everybody, you know, it's this great moment. Why do I bring this up? What does this have to do with Hebrews 7? You can flip over to Hebrews 7 now. What, the reason I bring this up is because Jesus has the power and, and really wanted to make sure it was clear that he had the, the power and the authority to completely change the system of worship that was status quo at the time. And Jesus is trying to get this woman to see that God's plan of salvation in the world is way bigger than one ethnic community and one geographical location. And the Jews were completely lost on that at the time. They were so locked into their prestigious pedigree. They were the Jews. They had the temple. They had the priesthood. They had the access to God. That the Samaritans were essentially outsiders to that. Yet Jesus goes into Samaria and he says, all of that is going to change. All of that's going to change. The temple, it's not going to matter anymore. The priesthood, it's not going to matter anymore. God is going to transcend all of that. Now, what we need to do is we need to see that one, Jesus. We need to see the one. We need to not get distracted with the cars coming from the left side. And we need to see the most important thing. The most important thing is we have a new high priest and a new covenant and a new place of worship that is not limited to a geographical location. It is God's people, God's spiritual people, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And here we are, halfway across the world, from Israel, in Grants Pass, Oregon. And what are we? We are a temple of the living God. Because Jesus changed everything. He changed it all. He changed everything. So what does that have to do with Hebrews chapter 7? Well, it's been about nine weeks since we've been in Hebrews. So I need to spend a little bit of time just bringing you guys back up to speed. Like, what's been going on in the book of Hebrews? Okay, here's the deal with Hebrews. Hebrews was written about 30 years after Christ and about five to 10 years before the destruction of the temple. Did you know in 70 AD, Herod's temple, this big, grand, impressive place, this place of interface between God and man was completely wiped off the the face of the earth by the Romans. Okay, Hebrews was written, I believe, before that, but about 30 years after Jesus came. So the church has existed for a while. And one of the things that was really tricky for the church in the first 30 years, particularly Jewish Christians, was the pull, the gravitational pull, like a tractor beam, back to Judaism was strong. There was this constant feeling like maybe we should go back to the old ways. 
Because Christians had sacrificed a lot to follow Jesus. They had been essentially exiled by Judaism. They, Judaism didn't want anything to do with them anymore. You know, they, they didn't want anything to do with them, so they were, they were really kind of on their own. They weren't allowed, at one point, they weren't allowed anymore to meet in synagogues. And they were really probably in many ways kind of excluded from social events. They, were, they, they had brought a lot of um, tension within their families, particularly, particularly Jews, who were largely probably still practicing Judaism. Christians come along with this entirely new idea. And there was tension between the two. And because of that, there were Christians that, that this author of Hebrews is writing to that were drifting. They were drawing back from Jesus and they were being tempted to go back to the old way, the old covenant, the old priesthood, the old place, the temple. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage them to hold fast to Christ, the new priest, the high priest, the only priest. And he's trying to encourage them to see that there's a greater temple, that there's a greater Abraham, that there's a greater law, that there's a greater Moses, and that there is no going back. I would summarize Hebrews this way. The author of Hebrews is trying to get the audience to draw near and hold fast. Draw near to what? The throne room of God through the high priest. Hold fast to what? To Jesus, the anchor of their soul. We were given that picture in chapter 6, 19. We, we see Jesus like this anchor. He's gone behind the veil into the Holy of Holies for us, and we need to hold on to him and not be pulled back into Judaism is basically the idea that this book is, 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 is chasing after. Now, the author of Hebrews has been prosecuting chapter after chapter the logic as to why Jesus is superior and why they should hold fast. You're trying to build confidence for the audience that would receive this letter so that they will hold fast to Jesus. And in doing so, he's reached this point where he, is now ha he now has to address a particular disagreement that he knows is gonna come up from Christian Jews or Jews that are courting Christianity and considering Christianity. There's this big problem that the Jews, particularly the Christian Jews, would have with this idea of Jesus being the high priest. And chapter seven is kind of responding to this problem. What's the problem? Well, the problem, it's in verse 14 if you want to look at it, but I'll just tell you. The problem is Jesus came from what line? Judah. What line did the priesthood come from? Levi. What's up with that? So you're, you know, you're reading this letter and you're a good Jewish Christian and you're going, hold on. How is Jesus the high priest? When Jesus didn't come from the line of the high priest. See, there was Levi, and then out of Levi, uh, some time later came Aaron, and the Aaronic priesthood was the high priesthood line. He was the, the lineage of the high priest, and they had something like 85 high priests over the course of Israel's history, all the way down to Caiaphas, right? And you'd be saying, wait a minute, how can Jesus be the high priest? When the Aaronic high priest surely is the highest of priesthoods. And so the author of Hebrews is going to take the time to explain why Jesus is actually the high priest. Now, some of you are saying, who cares? I'm not Jewish. Okay? Well, I'd like to also, at some point, try to help you understand why this really matters to you. It really has application to you. It really does. It's really important. But what the, the, the logic of the text, and the reason I'm, I'm trying to take all of chapter 7 this morning is because I want to keep the whole logic of the text intact. Sometimes we break these things up so small, we start to lose the logical flow. The, the author of Hebrews is writing a letter, and in this letter, he has logic, and it's going somewhere. I want you to see the logical flow here that he's trying to portray about the high priesthood of Jesus. Now, 
couple more things before we dive in. The author, what he's going to do, and you'll see this as we get into the text, what he's going to do is he's going to try to get these Jewish Christians to look bigger, to think bigger, to zoom out from their little ethnic understanding of Jews and Judaism and go, actually, God is doing a way bigger thing than just what you see in Israel. That's what he's going to try to get them to do. It's a very similar argument to what he does, what Paul does in Romans chapter 4, when he goes, yeah, you think we're saved by works? Well, what about Abraham? There was no law when Abraham got saved. There was no circumcision until Abraham had already been accredited righteous. And so the idea is, like, you got to go back further. Let's go upstream. Let's think bigger. That's what the author of Hebrews is going to do for us this morning. Now, before we jump in, I have to say one more thing, because some of you guys are going, priests? Who cares about priests? What, pre- what, is re- what relevance does priest have? Okay, if this whole chapter is arguing about why Jesus is the superior high priest, I mean, us as, as, as Western, modern Westerners in 2023 on the West Coast, we're like, who cares about priests? Those funny-looking guys with the, the collars? And like, who cares, you know? Uh, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I want you to think about the significance of priest, not just for Jews and for Israel, but the significance of priests for all humanity. This idea that you can just talk to God, that's, that's not just prevalent in Christianity, but prevalent in Western culture. This idea that you can just pray and God can hear you, you know, that is not um, something that you would think about if you were not out of a Christian culture. Christianity introduced that idea. So for thousands of years, all human beings knew that if they wanted to talk to God, if they wanted to interface with God, if they wanted favor from God, if they wanted to be blessed by God, they want to transcend to God, they have to go to a place and they have to have an interface. You know what an interface is? We got our new house, we got internet connected, and, and there's cable, right, in the wall, and they, they need something that's going to turn that cable into a wireless router, and so the cable goes into a box, and the box takes all those numbers and turns them into other things. I don't know how it works. And sends it off to your little device. That's an interface. Okay? It's something that, that, that translates one thing into another thing. The priesthood, and really the whole temple system, it's like an interface between God and man. And humans have known since the beginning of time that we need an interface between God and man. That's why every religion, every false religion, everything has a temple of sorts. Now, here we are, you know, our, our, we're, we're so intelligent in our modern era. We're so smart, you know, we're, we're 2023, right? Is it 20, what year is it? <laughs> Holy cow, I literally don't even know if that's right. It's 2023, and we have TikTok that China made for us. Thank you, China. And we're so smart. I mean, we're just so smart. So priests, like, that's archaic. Going to a priest, needing an interface to God, that's archaic. Some of you might say, yeah, I I don't know anybody that thinks they need a priest. I would like to propose to you that actually we live in a culture of priests and that in our culture, the religion of our society is the religion of self. I'm convinced. I think this is the number one religion. Like, don't listen to the lie that says, oh, we're a Christian nation. No, we're not. We are a nation that has bought into the religion of self. We worship self. And we see self as God. And what we have now in our culture is we have all of these little priests. Most of them are on YouTube or on, you know, uh, on Twitter. All these little priests. And what these priests do is they help us transcend into ourselves better. They help us love ourselves more. They help us see how valuable and smart we are. They help us be a better version of ourselves. They help us self-actualize. They help us find ourselves. Fitness gurus, they're priests. Pol- political analysts, they're priests. They're helping you access a place that may be of transcendence and elevation that maybe you never got to before. So don't be 
chronologically a snob, and don't assume that this idea of priest is old and archaic. We all do the same thing. We're all looking for transcendence. We're all looking to be elevated. We're all looking for meaning and purpose and value, and we all are looking to interfaces to try to achieve that. Now, I say all that on purpose, and it's because I want you to think about the relevance that this passage has for you while we still keep it in its original context. Let's see if we can do both those things. So here's our passage. Here's our passage. There's, it's going to break into three parts. And if you guys got the handout, you can follow along. If you didn't, that's okay. There's some back there still. It's going to break into three parts. The first part is verses 1 through 10, and we're going to call this Jesus comes from a better order. Second part is verse 11 and 12, and that's Jesus made a better law. The third part is verse 13 to 24, Jesus has better credentials. And the fourth part is the conclusion, and that's 25 through 28, Jesus is the better priest. So if you're writing those down, Jesus comes from a better order, he made a better law, he has better credentials, and he is the better priest. Let's work our way through that. We're going to move rather quickly. So, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, who's that guy? You'll see. For this Melchizedek, not Melchizedek, I know it's C-H, but it's, it's Melchizedek, okay? Melchizedek, king of Salem, not Salem, Oregon, priest of the most high God. We gotta speed up, I gotta stop making jokes. Okay, for, for the Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Any of you guys ever been reading Hebrews in your morning devotions? You come across this, and you're like, what the heck is that all about? Well, surely the Bible must say a lot about this Melchizedek guy, right? Because, I mean, he, he's like three chapters in Hebrews that talk about him. Oh, yeah, there's four verses in the Bible that talk about Melchizedek. Three of them are found in Genesis chapter 14, and the other one's found in Psalms. And they're both quoted here, or they're both at least alluded to here. Well, who is this Melchizedek? Let me put it very simply. Uh, Melchizedek is a Canaanite priest of the Most High God. And you should be thinking, Canaanite? Priest of the Most High God? I thought the Canaanites were like symbolic for the world and evil. Like, well, here he is. A Canaanite priest of the Most High God who was not a Jew, by the way. And Abraham, in a lot of ways, wasn't really either. I mean, he was like the first one, but only for half his life. Canaanite, he was a Canaanite priest of the Most High God. It says he's the, 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 the priest of El Elyon. If you look at the Hebrew, El Elyon is not the covenant-specific name for God. It's the general name. It's the transcendent name, the name for all of humanity. It means that this man, uh, Melchizedek, is the priest of all. He's, he's the priest of the high God who is over all, okay? He's not limited to a particular covenant. His name is um, the king of righteousness. That's probably a title. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. His kingdom is a city-state called Salem. Salem comes from the Hebrew word what? Shalom, 
okay? And shalom means peace, and not just the absence of conflict, but of uh, the way things are ought to be, this Jewish idea. So he's the king of peace, he's the king, uh, or he's the king of peace, he's the king of righteousness, and the author here presupposes that the audience knows and is familiar with this story in Genesis chapter 14. And the story is really not that complicated. Abraham settled, and Lot settled, his nephew in a different area, Lot settled by Sodom. Some marauding kings came and sacked Sodom, and they took Lot with them. And Abraham had his duty as a kinsman redeemer to go and to, to, to free Lot. So he goes and he frees Lot. Abraham was kind of like a miniature king in his own right. He had really his own city-state. He had his own resources and wealth and people. So he goes and he frees Lot, gets all this bounty, and then this really weird thing happens where all of a sudden this character named Melchizedek appears and Abraham tithes to him, 10%. Tithes to him. And this Melchizedekian figure blesses Abraham. So it's really interesting. It's a really crazy story. And the author here presupposes that you're familiar with it already. Now, I want you just to stop and consider the implications of this. Here we have a priest of the Most High God, listen, 500 years before the priesthood was even established. Weird. He's a Canaanite. He's the priest of El Elyon. And Abraham puts himself in a subservient role and is blessed, receives a blessing from him. I'm just going to say this. You think God can do bigger things than we think he can do? You know, I get people as a pastor, I get people ask me all the time, what about all the people in the unreached countries? What about all the people that like maybe, maybe a missionary didn't get there? Maybe they don't have a Bible. How are they going to know God? Well, who's this guy? What's, the, what's going on here? I mean, how could they possibly have known some of these principles of, of worship and blessing and tithe without, without the Mosaic law? I mean, the book Genesis, Exodus, those haven't even been written yet. So what's going on here? Well, I, I just would like you to just think about the fact that God does way more than you realize. And just like the Samaritan woman, just like Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, God is way more interested in what he's doing globally than what he's doing in one particular place ethnically. God is a global God. He's saving people all over the earth in all kinds of different ways. And this, this little section of scripture just kind of blows our minds when we step back and think about the fact that God's doing much bigger things than we realize. Okay, Sam, but what's the, what's the significance of Melchizedek? How are we supposed to think about him? Well, people argue about that. You, if you want to Google it, don't do that. If you want to Google it, you'll find all kinds of arguments about Melchizedek. Some people think he's an angel. I don't think so. Some people think he's the pre-incarnate Christ, possibly. I don't think so. I think the best way to see Melchizedek is exactly the way that the author here portrays him, which is a man who is a high priest and is a type or a prototype of the divine anti-type. Got that? Sam, what's a type? What does that mean? Okay, let me tell you. A type is simply this. A type, I would put it this way, is a foreshadow or a prelude to something that is still coming. Something or someone that bears semblance or shares particular characteristics to that which will later come and more fully fulfill it. So I think Melchizedek is a type of the anti-type. Jesus would be the anti-type. I think he was a prototype, a prototypical foreshadow of our future high priest, Jesus. That's what I think he is here to do. And I think that's what the author here of Hebrews is trying to draw out. How is he an anti-type? What is it about Jesus that Melchizedek portrays? Let me give you just a few quick things. First of all, he's the priest of all ethnicity. Eth ethnic 
He's the priest of all ethnicities. Okay, I got that one, sorry. Priest of all ethnicities. He's the priest of what? Righteousness and peace. Isn't that interesting? Peace and righteousness. By the way, there's no peace without righteousness, which is why we need the cross, right? We have peace because we've been made righteous. We have peace with God from righteousness. He is a priest who brought out bread and brought out wine, had this, had this kind of picture of communion that was to come. He is, listen, he's both a priest and a king. We talked about this last week on Easter, remember? He's a priest and a king. That was illegal in the Mosaic system, okay? There's a reason Saul got in trouble when he went and tried to sacrifice. He got in trouble, he wasn't supposed to do it. Okay, because there was supposed to be a separation of power there, but yet this person is a priest and a king. Who else is a priest and a king? That's the easiest answer. It's Sunday school answer. Good job. Jesus is a priest and king. You're always good to say Jesus most of the time. He's a priest resembling, it says, the Son of God. So he resembled the Son of God. He's a priest who blesses Abraham. And I think Jesus, I know, Jesus was meant to be a blessing to the Jews. They just haven't realized that yet. He is a priest with no beginning and no end. So, so these things, all these things create a type that anticipates a more full revelation of who this future high priest could be. Now, why is the author of Hebrews bringing it up? That's the question we really need to concern ourselves with this morning. Why is the author of Hebrews bringing it up? And the answer is very simple. simple. The author is introducing the superiority of a new order of priest. Does that make sense? Remember, the answer he's trying to, the question he's trying to answer is, how can Jesus be the high priest if Jesus didn't come from the line of Levi? Well, what he's going to do is he's going to say, actually, there is, listen to me, don't lose it, there's a superior order of priest that is over and above the Aaronic or Levitical priest, completely separate, not from the line of Aaron and not from the line of Levi. The author is going to argue that Jesus comes from that line of priesthood. That's what he's trying to do here. Now he's going to show how this line is superior. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, See how great this man, Melchizedek, was to Abraham, uh, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. Abraham. In other words, God set up this system to where the, the, the entire uh, nation of Israel was to tithe to the priesthood in order to fund the temple, um, in order to support the priests who would uh, day and night be making intercession for the people. Verse 6, but this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, because Melchizedek is the one blessing Abraham, Melchizedek is the superior in that sense. This is an honor-shame culture. It's very different than ours. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Jesus, uh, yeah. So what in the world is he getting at there? What's the logic? It's very simple. It's, let me just simplify it. The logic goes like this. Now again, think patriarchal society, honor-shame society. Why is Melchizedek greater than Levi? Well, because Levi came out of the lineage of, or pardon me, Aaron came out of the lineage of Levi, who came out of the lineage of Jacob, who came out of the lineage of Isaac, who came out of the lineage of Abraham, and who is greater than Abraham? Melchizedek. Are you guys following that? It's clear as mud, right? 
It's actually, when you read it like 5,000 times like I did this week, it's really not that confusing. It, it's, it's very simple. Because the son of Abraham was Isaac, and the son of Isaac was Jacob, and the son of Jacob was Levi, and the son of son of son of that was Aaron, and there was the priesthood. And Abraham, the patriarch, is being blessed by Melchizedek, therefore Melchizedek is greater. Okay, there it is. Verse 11. Now, if perfection, note that word, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for, parentheses, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. His point here is very simple. Why do we need another priestly order? Because the one that we have now stinks. That's basically what he says in my free translation. But that's basically, he's saying the priesthood of Aaron, the temple, the whole system, the law, it's not cutting muster. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not bringing what? Perfection. It's not doing what it really needs to do, which is to bring a, a sufficient sacrifice to really bring God and man back together. And for that reason, the author says, we need a better order of priest, a higher order of priest, one that can bring perfection. Because perfection, listen, perfection is the standard for us to be brought back into the presence of God because God is perfect, right? Because God is perfect, we need to be made perfect to be brought into his presence. So only Jesus can do this. That's his point. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So here he's tipping his hand as to why he's taking the time to extrapolate this. He's like, I know Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and I know there's never been any priests from the tribe of Judah. But that doesn't matter, because Jesus belongs to a higher order, the Melchizedekian order of priests, is what he's getting at here. Now, if you're taking notes, he's going to give us six credentials Okay, we'll go through them quickly. He's going to give us six credentials as to why Jesus is qualified to be our true high priest. The first is the typological credential. Write it down. The typological credential. He says in verse 15, this becomes even more evident, this fact that we need a new high priest and a new law, becomes even more evident when another priest arises that looks just like Melchizedek. So his logic here is that because Jesus looks just like Melchizedek, it's evident that he comes from the line of Melchizedek. That's pretty basic logic. The second credential is the indestructible credential. The indestructible credential. He says this in verse 16. Who has become a priest, Jesus, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. What's the power of an indestructible life? That's the resurrection. It's the thing we celebrated last week. What he's saying is Jesus is the high priest, not because he just happened to be born of the right tribe, not just because he happened to be born into the right family. Jesus is qualified to be the priest because he was born from the dead. He overcame death and is now eternally seated at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't need to have some snobby royal pedigree Okay? He proved that he's the high priest when death could not contain him. He sits at the right hand of the Father. That's why he is credentialed to be our high priest. 
The third credential is the scriptural credential. The scriptural credential. In other words, the Bible predicted it. Let's look at verse 17. For it is witnessed of him. Now he's going to quote Psalm 110 verse 4 which is one of the most important messianic psalms and most important messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. He's going to quote it. He says, out of Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, his point here is very simple. It's kind of his ace in the hole. He waited until now to play it. And that is, look, the reason we know Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek is because Psalm 110.4 said the Messiah would be from the order of Melchizedek. He could have just stopped right there and we would have been convinced, Right? It was predicted that Jesus would be of the order of Melchizedek. Number four, the effectual credential. The effectual credential. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So put simply, Jesus' credential is that he actually did what the priesthood couldn't do before. He actually made effectual what the priesthood and the law was not able to do. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week, so don't worry about that too much. Number five, the legal credential. This, like this writing down thing helps me know who's type A in the room and who's not. It's great. Yeah. The type A people are like, I got I to gotta fill every single one in. The non-type A people are like, whatever. Just, I'm just in the moment, man. I'm just in the moment. Just tracking with you, man. I don't, I don't fill them in. Just, okay. Um, in case you think I'm judging you. The legal credential, number five, verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, so his point is very simple here. Priests in the Aaronic priesthood, they became priests just because they were born into it. But Jesus comes with this oath from the Father, this oath of promise, this oath that cannot be broken because God's word cannot be broken, that promises that he will finish what he starts. Number six, the eternal credential. The eternal credential. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Okay, the reason this is the eternal credential is because priest after priest after priest after priest would die, leaving Israel sometimes in worse shape than before. It's kind of like our, um, our, our political system. Every time, every four or eight years, we get a new president and they start a whole new agenda and stuff never just seems to get done. Okay, with the priesthood, there was 80-something priests throughout the course of Israel's history. The point here he's saying is that we don't need to have this constant turnover of dead priests. We have one, once for all, eternal high priest, Jesus, forever. That's good news. Cool stuff, right? Now, let's finish verse 25. Consequently, in other words, everything I just said, consequently, he is able to save, this is good news, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Verse 25 is the whole key to the text. So what, Sam? So we got this high priest who's better than the Aaronic priesthood. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. So what? The so what is this. We can now draw near to God through him. We have our interface. 
We have our ultimate interface. We have our perfect interface. We have the interface, by the way, that every human is looking for, whether they realize it or not. Every human that knows there's something wrong, something they're missing. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they came from. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They don't understand life, and they're looking for something. The only interface that's going to answer those questions is Christ, because Christ is the only true interface to the one true God. And Jesus exclusively can be that high priest. Not Aaron, not the Levites, nobody but Christ. For it was, verse 6, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You know, one of the travesties of the high priest through the ages in the Bible was the immorality, the constant immorality Moral compromise of priest after priest after priest, embezzling money, bringing idols into the temple, broke God's heart. Jesus is, stands apart from all of that wickedness, all of that evilness. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did his once for all when he offered up himself. So the other high priests had to make atonement for their own wickedness, for their own sinfulness. Jesus is perfect and righteous. He is only concerned with making atonement for your sin. He's not distracted or concerned with his own iniquity, his own problems, his own struggles. He is the perfect high priest. He's laser focused on doing what he needs to do to bring us into the presence of God. For the law, verse 28, appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So to summarize, Jesus is better because he can actually save those who come to him, unlike human high priests. He's better because he's not distracted or burdened by his own iniquity. He's focused on making righteousness for us. He's better because he atoned for sin once for all, not lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb that was never able to take away the, right, the, the sinfulness of humanity. Jesus, the once for all slain lamb, has fully accredited righteousness to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. You are justified once for all by the holy and righteous lamb, who's not only the priest, he's also the lamb. He is better because he is the forever priest, not the temporary priest, not the fallen priest, not the sinful priest, but the forever priest. That's basically what he's saying here in chapter 7. It's really good news. So, now let's step back for just a moment. Thank you for bearing with me. I know that was a lot. We, we could have done that and should have done that in three weeks probably. But um, what's the big idea here? It would be easy, I think, for us as modern, those who live in modernity, those who live in the modern era, to, to sort of write this off, this part of the Bible, yeah, this just doesn't have any relevance to me. I'm not Jewish. I don't wrestle. I'm not tempted to go back to some temple. I'm not tempted to forsake Christ and go start sacrificing lambs. Is anyone here tempted to do that? I didn't think so. Someone's like, man. <laughs> I brought one. I'm really excited about it. And now you're poo-pooing on it. No, like that's not, a, that's not something that we, you know, again, how do we translate passages like this in the Bible? Well, let me say this first of all. The Bible was written for you, not to you, okay? And some of you guys need to hear that because I think some of you guys read it like it was written to you, and there are certain things that are written to you and certain things Jesus said to directly to all Christians, 
but largely it was written for us, so which means this was written to a different audience, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have application for us. It doesn't mean that there isn't relevance. Well, what's the bridge between this kind of odd and, 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 and different struggle that these Jewish Christians in the first century have? What's the bridge between their situation and ours? Let me give you two things that I think we have in common with this audience. I already kind of alluded to them a little bit. Two things I think we have in common with this audience. Number one, our proclivity to cling to tenured or impressive religious institutions. Boy, you know, nothing's new under the sun when it comes to that. What do I mean by that? I just need to say this. Judaism in the first century was an impressive thing. It was an impressive thing. The temple was impressive. It was jaw-dropping. Herod was not messing around when he made the temple. Okay? It was big. It was, it was opulent. It was huge. And not only was the temple, I mean, it drew people from all over the ancient world. People would come and do these pilgrimages to the temple. And there was this massive system of priests and sacrifices. I mean, upwards of multiple millions of people would come into Jerusalem for the Passover. Hundreds of thousands of lambs were sacrificed. I mean, the the Jewish system of religion was impressive. It was established. It was tenured. There were synagogues everywhere. There was the Sanhedrin. There was credibility. There was 2,000 years of history and legacy behind it. And here's Christianity, okay? This new idea that's, of course, rooted in an old idea, but this new idea that, that actually Jesus has created a new way to worship and that all of that has been fulfilled in Christ. I just want you, I want you to see, like, there's nothing new here. We are very and always have been very impressed by movements and institutions and systems and buildings and people. We're, we're very distracted by these things. There's an epidemic going in Christianity right now. Do you know, have you noticed it? Very powerful, influential leaders getting caught in moral failures. And it's wrecking the church in so many ways. Because people are like, but I liked worshiping that guy. Maybe worshiping is a strong word. I, I, I really liked this one church. They, they had it all figured out. It was huge. It was a movement. I thought we found the secret sauce. The way they did it was great and the music was so good and the speaker was so charismatic and the movement was so cool. And I'm just like, I'm impressed with it. And then the whole thing falls apart and and our faith is just shaken. You remember that moment where Jesus is walking by the temple with his disciples? And again, I can't say it enough. The temple was an impressive feature. Go to Israel. You can see the, the foundation stones of it. There's a foundation stone of Herod's temple that's the size of a school bus. One stone. They don't even know how they got it in there. It's incredible. The temple's impressive. Maybe they're walking by the temple and the disciples go, oh Jesus, isn't the temple awesome? You remember that? They're just like, it's so cool. And Jesus is like, it's gonna get leveled. <laughs> like literally what Jesus says. I mean, one, not one stone, he says, is gonna be laid. And that's exactly what happened. And I think it needed to happen, frankly. And it's really sad. You go to Israel, you see these Jews, and they're, they're at the Wailing Wall. It's like they're one last vestige of the temple. It's just, it's just the footings of the temple. And they're putting prayers in there, you know. They need a better interface. Putting, putting a prayer into a wall, they need a better interface. They need Jesus, you know. It, the, the temple needed to destroy because the temple was, I think, the ultimate idol for Israel. The whole system. It was just, and there's so much about Western Christianity that reminds me so much of it. We have our celebrities, our Christian celebrities, 
Maybe for you, it's Duck Dynasty guys. I don't know. I mean, they're funny, you know. Maybe it's, maybe it's your, your favorite celebrity pastor. Maybe it's the, the people that are making The Chosen. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these people. I'm just saying, stop putting them on a pedestal. They're not Jesus. They're not the priest. I'm thankful for the body and the diversity. I'm thankful for people that create things and people that, that can draw attention to Jesus. But if we don't stop platforming people, if we don't stop worshiping the temple, the church is going to continue to suffer from this mistake. There's only one Jesus. There's only one high priest. We've got to stop this. Remember what, uh, I'll talk about this more next week, but remember Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration? Like Jesus takes his boys up there and Jesus starts to glow. Such an incredible moment. All the focus should be on Jesus, right? And what does Peter say? Oh, we should make some tabernacles for all three of you guys. Yeah, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And as soon as he says that, the whole show gets shut down. And then God comes from heaven and says, this is my son. This one. Stop elevating Moses, representing the law. Stop elevating the prophets. Stop trying to make buildings that contain the glory of God. Stop trying to make places that are going to somehow capture glorious moments. Just stop it. When Jesus is exalted, the glory will come. And the problem is that we do that and then movements come and revivals come and then we're like, let's build a building around it right now. Hurry up. Let's codify it. Let's turn it into an institution. Let's turn it into a movement. Let's capture it. And then 50 years later, it's dead. I'm not saying there's institutions are wrong. I'm not saying buildings are wrong. I'm not saying any of that's wrong. I'm saying it's all about Jesus, the glowing one in the middle. Let's focus on him, okay? Let's focus on him. The second way that I think we relate to this passage is our proclivity to cling to human priesthood. And I already kind of mentioned this earlier, but I really think that we do this in our culture. We do this, we're looking for some kind of interface. We're looking for humans to tell us how to transcend, how to elevate our health, how to elevate our state of being, how to elevate our self-love or our, our mindset. We are in a culture obsessed with wellness. And there's nothing wrong with wellness, but don't make your wellness coach your priest. Make Jesus your priest. And so what I want to do is I want to push and I want to challenge you. And this isn't like the kind of thing where I want you to go, yeah, everyone needs to hear this besides me. Don't do that. I want you to think this week, who are my priests? Who are my priests? What do I mean by that? Well, how much time do you spend reading the word of God and interfacing with Jesus personally in prayer? How much time do you spend listening to your favorite political analyst? How much time do you spend listening to YouTube videos on someone who's trying to help you understand how to eat a certain way? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not talking about don't ever do that, but I'm saying who's your high priest? Who has the largest lion's share of, of, of audio, audible space in your head? Who are you looking to? Who are you looking to to elevate yourself? It's a very common language right now. We all want to elevate ourselves. What's our interface? What are we going to? What are we turning to? The author of Hebrews is, is really shouting at the audience to say, just hold on to Jesus. You got everything you need here. You don't need other priests. You don't need man-made systems. Come to him. Come to him. Our culture is pumping out priests left and right. And social media has just kind of created a chance for that to explode because everybody can be a priest now. You start a channel by saying, hey, you know, come to me and I'll help you elevate your life. Well, maybe you can a little bit, but, but I'm going to go to Jesus primarily. He's my high priest. 
The, the, the impetus of this passage, the imperative of this passage is to hold fast and to draw near. And this morning, if you're holding loose and drawing back, then you're probably holding on to something else and drawing near to something else. Is Christ your central interface? Or are you clinging to the temple? Are you clinging to the priesthood? Are you clinging to something that you think because God did something through this thing one time, now it's the whole thing? Don't do that. So one last question. How do I hold fast, Sam? How do I hold fast? How do I draw near? I want to hold fast. I want to draw near. I just want to draw your attention to one last thing. We'll close. Verse 19. For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Note this. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. All I want you to see here is the order that he says that in. He does not say, draw near to God and you will have a better hope. What does he say? You have a better hope, so draw near to God. My point is simply this. Don't take this away and go like, I need to go try harder so that I can have a better priest. No, you have a better priest. I need to go try harder so I can have a better hope. No, you have a better hope. Try harder. This is, this is the key to the new covenant. The key to the new covenant is we go through the right way. We start with what has been done. We have a better priest. We have a better covenant. It's done. It's finished. And notice what he says. Because we have a better hope, we draw near. The only reason you're not drawing near today is because you're not believing in the better hope. The problem is always a failure to believe the gospel. The failure is always a failure to see that God has provided that interface that you need, that he has met you where you are. So how do we hold fast? How do we draw near? Believe the gospel this morning. Believe in a better hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and we'll do some discussion. God, thank you so much for Hebrews chapter seven. And Lord, I pray that whatever was missed... Uh, your Holy Spirit would reveal maybe throughout the week or maybe in our discussion time now. God, I pray that we would really consider this morning where we have not held fast, where we have not drawn near, where we've looked to other priests or other systems, where we've made too much of men or made too much of places. God, elevate yourself in our view. Put yourself on the throne. Destroy the temples that we've made and bring us back to focus on you, God, we pray. And bless our time of discussion now in Jesus' name, amen.